1: roblox pens which is a bit of an in joke here we'll explain that later um tonight on the show it is mr dan Sam, and dan you're looking sprightly tonight.
2: thank you very much it's 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 amazing what these old bones can do <laughs>
1: it is amazing have you uh have you applied those bones to anything interesting this week technology wise oh technology
2: well, yeah look I, I i bemoan the day that uh, microsoft word decided the templates were a thing, I'm so sick of working with Microsoft Word templates. Oh, the go-to tell me about this. No, it's just it's I've, I've 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 been bashing my head against the brick wall in my house trying to get stuff done for work, and I don't really want to talk about. it Let me
1: imagine a template. It's a table with like massive margins uh, where you have to like write on the extreme right hand side or, or something yeah, like that.
2: Yeah, that that. Who decided that Word was what we design with? There are design so- there's design software out there that we should be using mm. rather than Word. I'm going to stop talking now because it makes me angry.
1: I feel I feel your pain. We'll we'll put a suggestion box over in the corner here for, for Microsoft. Um, I feel that we'll get a, a workout. Just um, stop. Just <laughs> stop. Good suggestion. Um, also behind the desk tonight, it's Lily Ryan. Have, have you had
0: a fair week in technology, Lily? I've had an okay week in technology, yeah. I've mm. also been getting mad about technology, Mostly, most recently getting mad about uh, Spotify, which I think we're going to talk about a little mm.
1: later. Yeah. Mm. I I, I do get mad at it. I I get mad that I can't find anything. I feel like I'm going through my record collection, but nothing is where I put it or where I expect it to be. So you're like, oh yeah, that jam. And you're like, where even is the thing? (laughs) I've forgotten the name of it. How did that happen?
0: (laughs) Well, then they invent new technology like the tile. So then you can find it with the technology.
2: This is true. Mm. Self-fulfilling prophecy right there.
1: I think it's okay to be angry about that. That's fair. (laughs) Um, I'm Warren Davies and uh, I'll be with you also tonight on the show. Um... After the year or so that uh, I guess the world has had, most of us might agree that we'd like to be better connected with those that we care about, um, maybe not through more uh, video chats or um, you know virtual board games or something like that, but something uh, in this space would uh, would be really good. And the reason I mention that is uh, a new study into older Australians has found that they don't necessarily like the technical skills to be part of, uh, I guess, the common meeting places and, and spots that we go to hang out and uh, and do stuff on the internet, but... They're missing a little bit of context and uh, perhaps have different values uh, to other generations when it comes to how they present and how they connect uh, through things like social media. So uh, we're going to have a chat with uh, Dr. Jonah Bossio of Swinburne University about uh, older Australians and their internet use. Um, that'll be interesting. Um, and later on, we're also talking to digital readiness for, for SMEs um, with PIN payments founder uh, Grant Bissett, which... Um, it's interesting, you, you kind of tend to think about uh, digital transformation and digital readiness as something that you know maybe we should have done by 2015 or 2016 at the latest or, or something or other, but uh, it is an ongoing process and it does take a, a full generation or more to, to shift from you know, uh, paper-based formats and standing around counters to um, just pulling at our phone and, and punching the buttons. So Pin are going to have a chat to us uh, around that and I think they're also uh, keen to talk about how um, – uh, COVID has affected small businesses and how we can kind of at least use some digital tools to, to stay ahead of how things have changed and the fact that we're all staying a South Australia distance away from each other um, <laughs> at the moment. Um, but before then, uh, we do have some stuff to have a chat about. Uh, Bits of news and stuff. Um, Mays Wallen, your roving reporter, uh, has dropped in a bit of news around uh, Roblox and they've uh, struck up a deal with Sony Music to uh, feature artists um, in this interesting kind of space. Um, So more Sony artists are going to be featured on the gaming platform, um, uh, which has come out in news uh, over the past couple of days. Um, So there has been stuff in there in the past. Uh, Lil Nas X, who um, I feel like every time I turn around and look back, um he's come up with another great idea and doing something more interesting so i can't think of anyone more uh, more better um for want of better words to be um hosting gigs there uh yeah that is interesting have have either of you folks checked out roblox before um no,
0: <laughs> no <it's okay. laughs> i was
2: going to say that's like roblox is the first time that i've heard the word said about an hour ago, when we started talking about it, so I'm i I'm, I'm afraid I'm not au fait with yeah. that particular. Same thing platform.
1: as sec, same thing as Second Life, when you're like chasing people around there, and there was like, oh,
2: geez, is
1: that um, Dr. Dre? Yes, it was. Oh, theoretically. it actually was. is, yeah. it,
2: is this like when that brief period where celebrities were in Animal Crossing? Yes. Yeah. Okay, I remember that exactly the same, Dan. Of course. Um,
1: <laughs> Lily, do you have any ideas about who you would queue up for uh, to
0: check out Roblox? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think that, like you were saying, that Lil Nas X was a really interesting one to put in there. But I think that we should be crossing over. We should be getting older artists to come in and try mm. it out.
1: Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young? Sure, why not? Sure, let's oh. get him in there.
2: <laughs> let's get all of us back.
0: Resurrect <laughs> 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 everybody. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I mean, the further you go back, the better. Like, Beethoven would be great, you know. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, We're going to keep an eye on that. Um, We're also keeping an eye on China, who's keeping an eye on us, who's keeping an eye on us. I don't know. We could go go on for ages. (laughs) But what's going on there, Lily?
0: Um, Some news came out uh, earlier today about the Chinese government. They've announced some new legislation, I think, that they're bringing in in September, for cybersecurity researchers. Um, so the deal is that if you're a cybersecurity researcher in China, if you discover a vulnerability, you have to then report that to the Chinese government and then the government will decide what to do about it, mm. uh, which is a, apparently a bit of a departure from, uh, from what is normally the case where research would be shared with primarily the manufacturers of the product and, uh, and then probably the broader internet in terms of uh, research and development of cybersecurity as an industry.
1: So from like a commission-based kind of someone's paid to check something out and the person who paid for it gets the first benefit of the results and then it filters back to, hey, everybody, here's something you should probably think about. That That's what we're more accustomed to.
0: Generally speaking, yeah. And uh, while I'm not entirely sure the news itself wasn't very clear about whether the product manufacturers are going to be able to release this information themselves, mm. it does mean that any of those researchers inside China may or may not get that credit and also the idea that the Chinese government will decide what to do with, mm. uh, with how we fix the problems. Was well, that
1: supposed to be there or, uh, you know, or should we do something about should, it? No, or, no. Uh, yeah.
2: should, should we be worried that perhaps it will become more of an, oh, this is something we can exploit now on behalf of the Chinese government so they're not going to tell anyone about it? Is, is, is that a risk?
0: I, I mean, who, who knows? Sure but it uh, it's uh, it's really it's got really interesting implications for cybersecurity research in general because uh, after a usual notice period that you would give the manufacturer, um, you then usually are able to share that information with other people for their own research benefit in advance of, of the, the tech that we can use to fight cybercrime.
2: Mm.
1: Interesting. Mm. Dan, you've you've been uh, keeping an eye on the states and uh, and what's going on over there. I believe.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I mean this is, I guess, cybercrime of a different different manner. No, so um, the Biden administration, Joe Biden in particular, has signed an executive order, uh, which is a fancy way of saying he's bypassed Congress to make a law. Um, Basically aimed at anti-competitive practices, uh, particularly among the big the big tech companies. So we're talking your Google's, your Amazon's, your Facebook's. Um, essentially uh, talking about antitrust so anti-competitive behaviour and pushing for more action on uh, corporate power, particularly among the tech companies. It, it, there are about seventy two different orders in this particular order, so it's quite dense. But and it does affect the entire US economy. But it's it's a pretty thinly uh, veiled, uh, I suppose, line in the sand. Uh, against the anti-competitive behaviour of um, uh, the big tech companies, um, it look it it's uh, suggested things that are suggested in the order. Nothing in this particular order is actually legally binding. It's all about getting agencies to sort of make new rules. Um, things like, you know, restoring net neutrality, re-examining prob- problematic mergers, uh, pushing for rules against excessive corporate surveillance, uh, prevention of unfair termination fees for internet ISPs like, uh, well, in the US, uh, so like Verizon and AT&T, as well as um, enforcing right-to-repair laws. And that, right-to-repair laws, you know, that... That's a, that's a big one, even if, like, uh, for anyone who listened to uh, our, our dear friend and co-Bite host, Vanessa Tohoka, on uh, Breakfasters yesterday would have heard a little bit more about this in detail, and I do encourage you to go to uh, R On Demand to listen back if you want a really great analysis of it, better than I can do. Um, but, you know, things like, you know, if, if a tractor breaks down, um, the farmer should be able to fix it themselves rather than sending it back to the company that made the tractor. So, yeah, it's a, look, it's a, it's, it's a broad sweeping uh, legislation and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens uh, with uh, these particular executive orders in coming weeks and months. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, the, the, the Bezos, maybe not so much now that he's not quite the head, but mm-hmm. the Zuckerbergs of the world have uh, various opinions on this that uh, they're not keeping to themselves very time soon.
1: Speaking of uh, spicy opinions, um, you've spotted something around uh, Spotify, a bit of uh, rare honesty that, that made its way to the surface, I think,
0: early. Yeah, this is, uh, this is what was making me angry earlier, this, uh, this piece of news that came out on the 7th of July. Um, a former Spotify executive um, has been accused of saying the quiet part out loud at a music <laughs> conference um, where he was talking about how he thinks that artists are um, quote-unquote entitled uh, when it comes to thinking that they can get revenue from their music streaming on Spotify and that the point of Spotify was never to make artists money. It was to uh, distribute music and to solve piracy. And so, uh, yeah, some some interesting honesty going on there. Not often we hear it that plainly.
1: To, to, to kind of play devil's advocate here, can you, uh, what, do you think that would, what do you think the context of that conversation was? Like imagine two people talking about what are we doing here
0: yeah, um in this case uh they uh they seem to have been talking about Taylor Swift in particular. Mm. Um who's somebody who I assume has made a fair bit of money off of her music, mm. but at the same time um she's not the only artist on the platform, or so I've heard.
1: Yeah, that's true. I think uh yeah, it, it it's it's <laughs> You know uh perhaps a, a, a piece of um, ego and a, a, I guess a, a very specific reflection on their place in the world and not respecting mm. um, ecosystems that, that that one can enter into and, and make money from and, and design for I, I think kind of saying mm. um, we provide for this but not for that and if you don't get it you're a bit thick or you know stuff like that mm. is is super strange um, but uh yeah it, it's unusual to, to have that kind of um, come out. Um.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that uh, something that grew out of a desire to prevent privacy has also gone back into uh, doing what privacy, uh, sorry, privacy piracy did Mm. and isn't uh, paying artists anything either. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, there's one pirate now. (laughs) And he's got a big, rich beard. Swedish guy. You know him. Swedish guy. Yeah. Shout out to also, uh, you know, Byte alumni, uh, Ryan Egan, for um, getting that into my feed today. Um, That was uh, interesting to see. Yeah. yeah, there is uh, also some uh, interesting local news um, uh, going on. Um, thanks to uh, Innovation Oz for um, putting this one out. Um, tech giants, uh, I, I guess, um, uh, appalled, concerned, um, lawyered up. However, you'd like to imagine it, um, at Australian government's proposed legislation um, to step in and take control um, of a company during a cyber attack. So imagine this scenario. Um, uh, a Google or a Dropbox or a Spotify or, or anyone um, has has been attacked and our personal details are at risk and credit card information and what have you, and the Australian government says they're going to step in with engineers and solve this uh, in real time. Um, which is the concern of, of, of these um, tech platforms? Um, I think... As as we indicated earlier in the news, we, we do have uh, healthy skepticism about their motivations and concentration of power and so forth. But you do kind of got to respect their their technical chutzpah. Um, uh, they can build um, great products uh, very quickly, deploy them over a lot of environments and countries and uh, and so forth. So the idea that uh, Australian uh, Australian Signals Directorate or Australian Cyber Security Centre can can just kind of pop in and um and sort of get the job done um, in a I guess a very hot situation during a cyber attack. I do, I do see their point about that's probably not the best approach um, to to um, dealing with this. Um, there has been some suggestions in uh, in news sources and, and online that uh, it's just a good way to um, set up a backdoor um, <laughs> for for a variety. Of, they're constantly asking for a backdoor into all of these platforms and like, hey, hey, you got a problem? No, we'll just come in. oh whoa, whoa, is that a backdoor? We didn't see that, but you know, let's leave it open. Um, do Do you two have any thoughts on this one?
0: Well, it's not the first time we've had legislation that's tried to do that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, I've forgotten the name of the specific legislation that was rushed through. Was it the end of 2019 that came through where um, Australian <sighs> yes. developers yes. were um, able to be requisitioned by the government to put in uh, whatever they were asked to put in to software? That's right.
2: Yeah, I do, I do remember that. I can't yeah, people follow...
0: keep forgetting that that's a thing, but it's a thing. Mm, it yeah, passed.
2: I remember being very worried about it at the time. We did definitely discuss it here, and then yeah, it went through. and so, said, well, I guess uh, this is life now, isn't
0: it? Um. Yeah, moving on. Moving on. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, how, how, how else has the world gone to hell? Exactly. I, actually, I, I can describe something else as how the world's, world's gone to hell. I've got a bit more news here for you. Go for it. Um, so if anyone who was listening to uh, The Breakfasters yesterday would have heard that um, someone has paid $870,000 uh, for an unopened copy of The Legend of Zelda, I can confirm that that is Record has been broken already. Already, already. someone has paid one and a half million dollars for an unopened mint condition cartridge of Super Mario sixty four. The world has gone insane. This needs to stop. What is wrong with people? I, I, I just—it's an absurd amount of money that to pay for one cartridge of one game. Like, I know collectors, you know, people clearly have money, going like, sitting around because no one's paying to go on holidays or anything. But, like, my God. Is this kind of like an NFT? Like, well, what, what's going on here? See. Well, yeah, this is the thing. Like, oh, yeah, NFTs will pay millions for, you know, a pixel. But, no, this is actually a physical cartridge. It's in mm-hmm. its, you know, original unsealed plastic. Like, it's in mm. mint condition. Mm. And I would be impressed if I saw that and thought, hey, because, you know, I, I – owned Mm. Mario Super Mario 64 it was an incredible groundbreaking game you know the first game to like properly work in 3D with different camera angles you know know. it was you know I'm not a gamer but I remember that game very fondly from when Mm. I was a kid so to see a you know unopened version of it from 20 years ago would be cool having said that I would not pay one and a half million dollars for it
1: I kind of feel like you would if you Hey, one five yeah. Million yeah, I can see you're passionate about it.
2: Uh, I don't know about what? that.
0: I mean, that's that's the question is what would happen next. Will you open it?
2: That's the thing, right? Like you, you couldn't because it's, it's like as soon as it's open, it's not worth that money anymore. This is this is the whole false economy of buying things that I don't understand and I never will. Just
1: put it in Perspex in a big kind of like feature above your bed. Yeah, it's like thing. look at
2: this thing that I spent like the, the cost of a house on.
0: And you can imagine playing the game.
2: Well that's it. Or no, you would probably just play, play the cartridge one. of the game that you've got sitting around that you know probably doesn't probably work, but at the same time you're not going to crack it open just to play it. <laughs> I, would you? Would you? No. No.
0: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rr.org.au. Triple R.
2: Digital inclusion and helping all members of our society make the most of the opportunities that online culture presents is something that we're always interested to hear on Byte. And some new research out of Swinburne University of Technology has shed some light on the barriers that are holding older Australians in particular back from using social media. Dr. Diana Bossio is a associate professor in media and communications at Swinburne University. Uh, she leads the social media research group and is the democracy and voice research leader for the Swinburne Social Innovation. Oh, excuse me, Social Innovation Research Institute. Diana, thank you so much for being uh, with us this evening.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Not a problem at all. Now, um, we've had your co-author on this paper, Anthony Macoska, on the show a few months ago to discuss similar issues of digital inclusion among older Australians. So uh, can I ask what drove you to look specifically at uh, the social media use of older Australians for this paper?
3: Yeah, sure. So this was a, um, a research project that we did in partnership with Telstra and we were really looking at not... Uh, copying what um, so many people do when it comes to older people and digital inclusion, which is just to kind of teach tools. Here's how to use a computer. Here's how to use a phone. Off you go. What we were really looking at was, well, what does it actually mean to share and connect, um, especially on social media, and what might be the barriers that prevent um, older people from from getting on social media and and being part of um, those forms of online and digital life?
2: Cool. And, and and so with the with that research that you were doing, what, what were the kind of main barriers that you identified for older people to uh, get onto the socials?
3: Well, originally we thought, I mean, like everyone else, that uh, we were going to get into these uh, workshops and older people were going to say that it was lack of technical skill that was holding them back. But actually um, it, it was much more about uh, older people's perceptions of um, of social media not being a place for them um, and all of the kinds of cultural barriers that they felt pre- prevented them from from um, being a, a useful and productive member of social media, I guess.
1: <laughs> is, it, is it a case of council builds skate ramp, kids take over skate ramp, older skaters go down and go, oh, maybe I'll just go home and have a cup of tea? Like, is it, how do we... These places are built for everyone, and anyone can do anything with them. Yeah, it's a, it's our creative opportunity. Um, what, what kind of put them off? Do you think?
3: Um, I think it's the same kind of ageism that they experience in society, reflected in our online spaces. It was a, I guess, a more of a feeling of they didn't want to look old on social media. So um, partly it was they didn't feel like social media wasn't appropriate space for older people in that it was full of younger people speaking in a language and using forms of self-expression that weren't appropriate for them or that they felt they couldn't participate in and secondly it was you know feeling like uh, they were going to make a fool of themselves by trying to kind of negotiate some of the more complex social boundaries that they felt were online
1: is it so it was in it was in isolation. They didn't want to be a fool in front of a stranger or, or what have you, or was it respect to kind of their communities? So you know they didn't want to embarrass their their kids or grandkids, or they didn't want to say the wrong thing. I'm kind of curious on that point.
3: Yeah, I mean, some participants very much felt like you know, my grandkids definitely don't want to see me on social media. And some some participants said, you know, look, I've tried to comment <laughs> on my grandson's Instagram, but he didn't didn't really seem to, you know, like that. <laughs> he thought I was prying. Um, and so they felt confused about what the kind of etiquette was with family members and, and peers on social media. But, you know, a lot of it was that trying to kind of convince an older person that, Actually, this space might actually fit your interests or your values. Um, that was a that seemed to be the harder ask. That they um, a lot of the work that we had to do um, in getting them to share and do some of the things that we take for granted, like taking selfies and things like that. Um, it was really a matter of trying to convince them what the value was for them, and that. And so, I guess the research is showing that it's a lot of the kind of social and cultural. Uh, boundaries that we have generationally um, that often stop older people from sharing online um, but also their own perception of the value of these places um, for their social lives.
1: I'm going to suggest a radical theory that uh, older Australians are perhaps more social and have a better understanding of what um, being social is compared to some of us who grew up, you know, within these kind of, um, you know, twisted gardens, I guess. But interesting. I could just imagine, it would be totally the sort of thing that would happen to me where someone would be like, hey, Warren, like, you haven't been returning my calls. Just checking you're okay. I'm like, hey, I'm just trying to get some clout here on the gram. Come on. (laughs) Shh. Don't do that, (laughs) Grammar. I
2: find find the observation around kind of selfies and the visual representation because, you know, these these platforms are largely visual mediums or media. Mm. It was something that uh, older people weren't really kind of comfortable with. Was was there any sort of underlying cause for that feeling that you found?
3: Yeah, there were two things there. The first one was kind of generational, it was really hard for a lot of the participants. To get their head around the idea that you know you can take a photo of yourself that's you know un unposed or informal, or you don't have to you know put your nice outfit on and pose for the photo, and because that generation grew up, you know, in a in an era where taking a photo of yourself was actually a big deal. <laughs> you know, you got dressed up. You, you actually went to a place with a professional photographer and, and took a photo and that photo would be passed around family members and it would be a really important um, record. And it was hard, I think, to get um, to, to get this kind of ephemerality um, of the... Of, you know, self-expression uh, as a kind of thing that would that people would even be interested in. You know that um, that it that it it wasn't necessarily you know um, the way that they'd photographed themselves before. Mm. And and the second thing really was, uh, unfortunately, I guess a reflection of ageism that they'd experienced in their communities and um, feeling like social media spaces were useful. Basis, um, where youthful faces were much more acceptable. Um, and I think this was definitely gendered. Um, um, many more of the female participants felt very, very um, reluctant to um, put their faces on, on social media for fear of looking old and all of the kind of negative connotations that they felt c- came with that.
0: So I'm, I'm curious to know uh, more about You know, when you say older generations, what kinds of generations you're looking at and just how old, you know, you have to be to be considered older. Um, Because I know that for me, and I'm in my 30s, to be told that the laughing face emoji is making somebody old. So you should be using the skull emoji instead in order to convey that you're amused. What? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're old. <laughs> you're
2: old. Okay, okay, well, I learned something tonight.
0: <laughs> you know, internet. The, the internet enables us to um, evolve these expressions generationally, really rapidly. Um, hmm. So, is that, uh, is that something that you consider as part of your research? Is the communication layers between generations and how that works?
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean, there were um, plenty of participants who look. They weren't. They were actually pretty technically savvy. Um, they, you know, um, they used zoom, they, um, understood email. They, um, were pretty savvy, uh, Facebook, Facebook marketplace users. (laughs) Um, but, (laughs) um, but certainly feeling like those, um, those layers of communication, um, were generationally specific. That was, that was definitely, uh, definitely something that they communicated and, um, Definitely felt uncomfortable with it. You know, it, it was. You know, it, it, uh, one of the participants said, "This is a language that I don't really understand. It's really complex for me." And you know, there, there are these are languages that we kind of, um, as slightly younger people, grow up with, um, whereas this is something that they need to learn. Um, in terms of who who we who we were talking to, um, it was people 65 plus. Our youngest participant was sixty five and our oldest participant was ninety two.
2: Sorry, I'm just blowing. <laughs> sorry, Diana, you were saying?
3: <laughs> Sorry, what was that I was
2: just saying 92 so the was the 92 year old participant was that was that someone who did have a reasonable grasp of technology or or, or were they starting from i suppose a further uh, a longer learning curve than the 65 year old participants who kind of probably would have worked in <laughs> a career that used email or something along those lines
3: You'd actually be surprised. It was the um, it was the much older participants that were so into it. Um, in fact, the 92 year old was um, an ex filmmaker, so he was very into learning how to share and how to take video, um, how to do digital storytelling. Um, we have this amazing. Um, very short video of him discovering for the first time that you can um, switch your screen to to um, show your face, and oh, like just the look the look of pure joy on his face when he realises all the kind of uh, technical things that he can do with his iPad is just wonderful. It's, it's actually, I mean, this sounds um, morbid, but it is true. A lot of the much older participants are very aware of time and the preciousness of time and they were much 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 more interested in making all of the connections that they could with the time that they had.
0: I'm wondering if there's a a bit of a gap in generations and engagement Um, if you know the older you are probably the more I feel like th- that I see a lot of people, a lot of older people, particularly in their 80s and 90s, on, say, Twitter and on Facebook, or going viral in various ways, um, or having their own personalities. There's this one uh, particular Twitter account where this guy films his garden, and he's just talking about his garden. He's very popular. I'm wondering if there's sort of a, an upscaling or something uh, where, you know, the older you get,
3: probably the more likely you are to be popular. Yeah. I think we have to. I, well, the first thing I would say is just like younger people, younger people, older people really get um, uh, kind of homogenised into one group. But in fact, older people are just as diverse as younger people. They have lots of diverse interests, and um, the things that make them interesting are diverse too. Mm. Um, I think maybe as you get older, you have less. Um, inhibitions uh, around, you know, whether or not you're going to make a fool of yourself, perhaps. Um, but, you know, uh, there are, I guess there are lots of ways to become popular on on social media. I, I don't know if age should be the barrier. I think it should definitely be content that should be the, the thing that makes you popular. Yeah, agreed.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Lily, you should know I'm building up towards a, a very dedicated train set social media profile oh, um, in, in my later years. I'm just laying the groundwork now and I'm building up to coming out um, potentially in my sixth decade as a, Wonderful. as a train spotter.
4: Looking forward to that.
1: Perfect. I think it's, it's also maybe like we all get pulled. There's a gravity towards the, the mean. Um, like when you're a bit younger, you're like, oh, I just, I just want to get the likes. I just want to do the thing that everyone's doing. So we all just make the same stuff, you know, and the mm. only variation is like, you know, your coordinates and the time that you did it. But people are like, hey, if I'm going to do a thing about my cow, I'm going to do it. I love – there's a great donkey TikTok account where a guy sings to his donkeys as they sit on his lap. And, oh, that's beautiful. You know, <laughs> you can't imagine a, a 19-year-old doing that
2: really. Um, yeah. D- D- Diana, you, you mentioned uh, uh, the kind of, I suppose, apprehension coming from a, a, and a, a desire to not make a fool of oneself when you go onto social media, and about like, I guess, curating your own personal brand in that way. Is that really all that different from how a younger person presents themselves on social media? And it's kind of, I suppose, they're just more practiced at it, or they they come at a at a default setting of curating their own
3: image. Yeah, I, th- I think the the difference is that um, and I kind of, I guess I want to disagree with something that was said before that um, social media spaces aren't really made for older people. Um, they're, they're definitely made with younger people in mind and with the forms of self-expression that appeal to younger people. Um, and uh, I think older people's reluctance is just responding to... Um, a language and a, a, a form of um, cultural practice that isn't really made for, for them and um, you know it, it's it's not just about technical skills um, even though a lot of older people you know need to learn some of those technical skills for the for the first time it's much more entangled with how social media cultures operate to kind of prioritize younger people and younger people's wants and needs and desires um, and how how hard it is actually to incorporate generational norms um, that that aren't you know um, millennial or or, um, or younger and um, on online, it, it is it's it is difficult, um, and it, there is much more at stake. I think for an older person um, to you know to try and participate in, in a in a in an environment that, that they don't feel is for them. Mm.
2: Sounds, it sounds like there might be an opportunity for someone to create a platform that does cater to older older people. Yeah, that'd be cool. So if anyone's listening out there, get onto it before I do. Um, Diana Bossio, uh, thank you so much um, for uh, discussing with us uh, the research that you've been doing into uh, older Australians um, and the use of social media. Where, Where can someone find out more if they're
3: interested? Um, well, if you're an older person and you're interested in doing, um, the program, um, you can actually contact your local library. It's, um, um, the program that we, uh, piloted and that, that that this research came out of is is now being rolled out across Victoria. So contact your local library if you want to find out about um, how to um, share better on social media. Um, If you're interested in this particular research, it's been published in the Continuum Journal um, which you can access, uh, I think, through university libraries.
2: Absolutely. Uh, We've we've been speaking to Dr. Diana Bossio, Associate Professor in Media and Communications at Swinburne University of Technology. Thank you so much for your time, Diana. Thank you.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Not a problem at all. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, (laughs) rrr.org.au.
1: And we're now joined uh, over the sound power by Grant Bissett, who's the founder of Pin Payments. And it would not be a surprise to anyone if we said uh, how businesses work and do things and transact has been uh, shaken by the the global pandemic. And uh, I am pleased to see that the St Kilda market is still up and running, uh, taking dirty cash um, over the um, counter. If you want to get some nice wooden earrings or you know a feature plate for your wall or something like that, but elsewhere um, we're all having to be a little bit more inventive with how transactions work. And Grant, is it fair to say that sits square in your wheelhouse for how we how we transact? Is that okay? It
4: it is. It is. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, so pin, PIN Payments is not um, I, I guess when you get to this space You go, oh, it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's a payment gateway it's, a, it's an interface between the bank And you know, a PayPal and a, and a business and a customer But that's not quite it So probably you would do it the most justice If you explained what actually PIN Payments is
4: Sure, we're kind of just making it easier To get paid with cards And we're doing all of the uh, expensive And messy work behind the scenes That the banks used to supply So when someone pays with a credit card the banks would supply a bunch of process, a bunch of manual operations, um, and a bunch of commercial work to make that happen. It's all sort of messy, expensive stuff. And it meant that some payment capabilities were, were out of reach of very small businesses or sole traders or freelancers. Um, and more, more recently, there are technology startups and there are sort of more uh, modernized, automated approaches that eliminate some of that cost and and take that process away from the large banks to more specialist providers um, it just makes payments that much more accessible for, for smaller for smaller businesses
1: is it kind of is it fair to say that kind of the the generation of, of a square and um, those types of services is kind of where you sit in that it's just easy to set up an account pick something up and for a you know a small percentage or something like that you can you can start trading is that fair?
4: yeah I think that's I think that's exactly right I think it's part of a Part of a a large trend of of moving sort of payments and e-commerce generally, moving it away from banks and large corporates to to more specialized technology providers and just just products that are more accessible to, um, to people to pick up and use straight away.
1: I'm curious for kind of like the the first because uh, I think you've been around since about 2010, 11, 12, thereabouts. Is that right?
4: Yeah, sure. We launched the product in, in 2013.
1: 2013, yeah. I'm curious to know maybe not just the duration of it, but the time you sat there unpacking the back of house kind of processes for banks um, and how you know how involved it can be to move 10 dollars from someone to somebody else. What, what was that like when you were looking at it? I guess maybe doing like you know fit for for the food for your service um i would be interested to know some of the highlights the lowlights for like can you believe a bank does this and then they do that and then they do that and then it goes off to afghanistan and then a donkey carries it to new zealand and
4: oh that well that that sounds about right um we i, I guess when when we started we were somewhat naive about the, the level of complexity and the level of kind of competition and uh Pressure from regulators and, and commercial participants—it's um, a mess, and it, it, there's there's so much going on behind the scenes. Um, so, so we set out to build a product that was available to Australian businesses to maybe sell things online, maybe even maybe even export, right? Sell in foreign currencies without all the paperwork and the bank merchant accounts and security deposits and and all of all that stuff that that our customers didn't didn't want to deal with. Um, In doing so, I mean, when we we founded the the company, we were were bringing a lot of technical experience, a lot of software and web platform experience and barely any payments experience. So we had a lot to learn. And um, the the amount of complexity was uh, just just astounding. And and in addition to the complexity, it's like complexity in, in an industry where the incumbents are large Australian banks. So that means the the tech systems are generally a little bit a little bit old um, and a little bit faulty, and so that's where the donkey in Afghanistan comes in. Um, so just to give you an example, we we would we would work with a banking provider um, who would uh, couldn't couldn't figure out how to stop sending us paper mail, um, which is not an unusual scenario until the point where we got to. Something like twelve thousand accounts with this with this institution, and um, I had an office in in Perth at the time, and the uh, someone from Australia Post bought our mail um, in several buckets and told us that that my office got as much mail as the adjacent postcode. Um, That's so, incredible. <laughs> so it's like just an example of just one part of a very large system, but just one part that wasn't operating correctly, and. Um, there's ine- inefficiency that we can that we can fix when we bring new sort of new design and new uh, new approaches to this stuff
0: so now that uh, now that we're all in this uh, paperless contactless social distancing world and we've got all of that sorted out what kinds of changes have you seen with that um, you know the digital payment space because I know that during the lockdown a lot of businesses would have adopted this kind of technology has that been something that's been maintained
4: I- I hope so. Uh, it, it has been for now, and I, I hope that I hope that some of it's maintained and retained um, when when things get better, right? When things return to something something more normal, um, we we tried for a long time to kind of educate people around the benefits of of some of the techniques that are pretty mainstream now. Like like for example, you might add your credit card to a ride-sharing app and then never type it in when you use the app. Um, it's really simple when you use it, but it's but before you've used that thing, it's difficult to explain. It's difficult to understand why it might be useful. Um, so it's the same now with like QR codes when you check into a venue. We've we've kind of just been forced to use this thing. It's easy to do. We can we can do it um, uh, immediately. But to to sell someone on that idea um, without that immediate need has been has been a challenge, and it's and it probably held back. Um, uh, some of these techniques from being popular the past five to ten years, I think.
1: And, and I'm interested to know what's the, the sort of perfect use case, that the user group that sort of picked up PIN first and went, oh, yeah, like this is killer. Um, yeah, who are the people who love you the most, the super fans? Sure.
4: Sure. It's, I mean, right at the beginning, it was it was the, the developers who were building products that, that needed something. Better than PayPal, um, they we we, we had a, a very strong network in the in the Australian sort of web development and app development community, um, and these people really understood the problem that that we were trying to trying to solve. There was nothing to sell to them because they they shared our frustrations with with um, the market in Australia at the time, so they were all cheering for us. Right, we 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 helped to sort of open up the market and move. Payments away from the banks to the specialist payment providers, where it was easier and cheaper and faster. Um, so we had a good kind of cheer squad early on, um, and that was that was all the software engineers. And then once the product was sort of launched, we we figured out that uh, the the real opportunity is that we. 're we're not we're not building things to assist software developers the software developers are building something in turn for for a business obviously and we could just build really simple tools to to make this stuff available to businesses of, of any size so something that used to be only uh, sort of affordable for an established, Large business can now just be switched on tomorrow by your local cafe very much that square style approach that you mentioned
1: mm. and, and and what about now what what 's your hope for I, I can really see a strong use case for you know these businesses um, I think in our in our back channel conversations we we're talking about you know uh, bands and venues and people who kind of have have been gazumped by um, by the pandemic. Why is it important yeah. for, for those people to be sort of going, oh, but, you know, I used to get cash for my records or, or whatever it was?
4: Sure. So so cash is still there. But if we think of hospitality, for example, we see we see hundreds of venues that, that work with PIN payments because they, they have a, a, a platform for taking bookings and reservations and helping them plan their capacity and rostering and so on, helping them operate. And... That platform is not something they build themselves, of course. It's just they're, they're just other e-commerce products that they use, but it needs a payments back end. and so those kinds of businesses work really well together with a platform partner, with someone like Pin Payment. You can keep the keep the bar running and keep the restaurant running at as best you can, right, and manage capacity properly. Mm. And that 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 kind of approach, I think, fits well with these with these new payment systems. Mm.
1: If, if, if people are keen to, to give it a go, um, it sounds like a sort of pick it up, get your details in and, and, and get going. Um, for, for businesses out there who like the sound of this, what should they do? And, and objectively, how, how hard is it to get started? Like if people sign up for this and are they going that day? Uh, is it five minutes, five hours?
4: Sure. So it's pinpayments.com. Sign up. You've got, a, you've got a test account straight away. You can start playing with it when you're ready to... Sort of accept funds from your customers. There's a, a pretty standard ID verification process, and then and then you're up and running straight away.
1: Nice. Well, that sounds awesome. Definitely going to track you down if I bump into you somewhere and uh, find out more about that donkey because uh, <laughs> it, it sounds like you you really did start to make some inroads into a, a bad process. We've been talking to uh, Grant Bissett from Pin
2: Payments you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform
0: triple r on fm digital online and via the app thanks so much for being here means a lot
1: there's a couple of things we wanted to flag. South by Southwest is still open if you want to set up a panel. If you don't know, it's a great kind of festival where kind of technology, barbecue, music, and a few other things come together. <laughs> it's now mostly a, an online kind of situation, the world being the way it is. You can but make your own
2: barbecue. You can make your own <laughs> barbecue.
1: You could do a panel about barbecue. Um, it's probably been done, so try something else. Um, yeah, I think
2: Kalise did that, didn't she? <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. Panelpicker.com. S by SW.com. Uh if you want to give that one a go do not die until you've been at South by Southwest other things that would be good as well
0: yeah so uh, the lineup the schedule for PyCon AU 2021 has just been released mm. and for those who've not heard of PyCon AU before it's the annual Australian Python programming language conference mm. it's pretty good I'll be there just
1: what are you gonna be doing
0: <laughs> well I'll be uh, I'll be giving a talk at this one mm. There are a lot of very good people giving talks at this one, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but they, uh, yeah, they've just announced the lineup, and apart from me being there, you'll actually get to see some good people there as well. So it'll be great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 none of this false modesty. Really. None <laughs> of this. No, I, I won't stand it. Your talk will be fantastic. Yeah. We've got PAX as well. Um, PAX Online starts uh, on the 15th. That's what, uh, tomorrow, USA time, so our Friday. It's on Twitch and Dick's Discord (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Why did I say it like that? Uh, You can head to paxsite.com to find out more about that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, We've also got the GDC Game Developer Conference, which starts on next week, but looks like the 19th. If you go to gdconf.com, you can check that one out as well.
1: Nice. Um, thank you very much to our guests uh, on the show tonight, uh, Diana and to Grant, Willie and Dan. It's been fun, and uh, Elizabeth McCarthy. Thank you very much to you.
0: Hi, this is Vanessa DeHolker. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.